Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Garth Greenwell. Garth is the author of What Belongs to You, which won the British Book Award for Debut of the Year, was longlisted for the National Book Award, and was a finalist for six other awards, including the Penn Faulkner Award. His short fiction has appeared in the Paris Review, A Public Space, and Vice, and he has written criticism for The New Yorker, The London Review of Books, and The New York Times Book Review. What Belongs to You is a story of desire set in Bulgaria. It follows an unnamed narrator and his obsessive relationship with Mitko, a charismatic young hustler he meets in the public bathrooms beneath Sophia's National Palace of Culture and pays for sex. The narrator is an American teaching high school in Bulgaria, as Garth was, and he sees a striking similarity, as Garth did, in the codes of cruising on display in Bulgaria and in the narrator and the author's native Kentucky. Garth was primarily a poet when he found himself writing what would become the novel, which he did each morning from 4.30 to 6.30 before going to teach. In this episode, we discuss that change, as well as the language of desire, indulging writerly eccentricities, and why he writes first drafts by hand. The first year I taught high school, I didn't write a word. And I remember at the end of that second semester, just sort of being like, whoa, if I don't do something, you know, I'm never going to write again. to get started by addressing the fact that you uh, are trained as a poet and then you move to Bulgaria to teach English, much like your main character in What Belongs to You, and found yourself writing a novel. I wonder if you could start by talking about how that happened. Well, you know, I mean, I I wish I sort of had uh, a kind of sort of neat uh, narrative to give, but really it's it's pretty mysterious to me. I don't fully understand. When I um, went to Bulgaria that sort of first couple of months, I finished a manuscript of poems and put it away and um, thought I would not write for a while, that I would sort of, um, you know, let the well fill back up. Uh, And it was a surprise to me when I started really hearing sentences that I knew were not broken into lines. Well, in one sense, I mean, I think Bulgaria was really key to it. And I think the kind of peculiar relationship to your own language you have in a place where you're speaking another language every day has something to do with it. I think the kind of amount of information I was taking in all the time in this foreign place has something to do with it. But I also think it was a process that began years earlier when I began to work as a high school teacher. Um, And, you know, before that, I had been in academia, um, where like my most important relationships were with books and kind of the most um, sort of urgent things for me were like my own thoughts and, you know, these sort of academic things I was doing. Um, This was your poetry MFA? Well, no, it was actually this. So after my poetry MFA, I did half of a PhD in English literature. And yeah, it was in 2006 that I um, thought I was just taking a year off to go teach high school. And then um, that became seven years by the time I quit. And I think, you know, going from the sort of solitude of scholarly academic work um, to being thrust into like really this kind of very intricate relationship with 70 adolescents, um, you know, I started like I, I, in ways that were very surprising to me, fell in love with my students and sort of um, 
found myself capable of a kind of parental feeling I had never suspected in myself. And, um, and I became really interested in their lives, which means I became really, in, which, which means that I became really interested in their stories. And I think that, you know, kind of high school teaching, you know, shifted me from a kind of more purely lyrical or more abstract way of approaching literature to a, um, to a more narrative way of approaching literature and to sort of a real interest in, in other people's lives. I want to back up actually to the thing you said about hearing sentences that weren't broken into lines. Um, so I guess taking from that, that's how your poetry often comes to you. You'll get just kind of a snippet of something and kind of start tugging at that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how it did work. But so how, how long did you kind of take to get a character and a feel of like a story being present within those sentences? Well, um, I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, so the book really begins with place. And I mean, that place being Bulgaria and that place also being the bathroom beneath the National Palace of Culture where the novel begins, um, which is, you know, a real place in Sofia. It's Sofia's most notorious cruising place um, where gay men have sex with one another. And, um, you know, I was fascinated by that place. I was fascinated by the people I met there. I was fascinated by the ways in which, um, you know, the codes of cruising in Bulgaria in 2009 or 2010 were the same as the codes of cruising I learned in public parks in Kentucky um, in the 1990s. And I was fascinated, you know, by, as I sort of got to know people in this community and this cruising place in Sofia, I was fascinated by the ways in which sort of their stories reminded me so much of the stories of the first men I met, um, the first gay men I met in Kentucky in those parks. So I think, you know, the book, really came out of that and it came kind of sentence by sentence. And I mean, I did feel like I was discovering character and discovering um, the relationship. I mean, I guess the sort of characters revealed themselves to me through their interactions with one another. And then it was from that relationship that sort of the story grew. I mean, I, I, did not see very far ahead as I was writing the book. I wrote it sentence by sentence. I never sort of saw further than the end of a scene. Um, and really, I mean, I was, you know, really I was thinking of it as writing sentences. I mean, I, I was working full time as a high school teacher. I wrote from four 30 to six 30 in the morning before going into school. And I felt like I was just, um, sort of feeling my way forward sentence by sentence, really in the dark. Yeah, that schedule amazed me. <laughs> As someone who is not a morning person at all, I was really um I was really struck both by how impossible that seemed to me, but also just how lovely the experience that you described of it was. I can't remember where I read you speaking about this, it might have been like a uh, publisher's weekly essay, but you're, you talk about getting up very early and being sitting, you know, sitting alone and in quiet and with these notebooks and just this very private experience. And that sounded um, yeah. pretty remarkable. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. I just sort of did an interview where uh, someone asked, you know, what was the worst part of writing the book and what was the most wonderful part of writing the book and kind of that's both 
I mean, you know, it was, I'm not a morning person either. Um, I mean, my kind of natural schedule sort of um, is quite nocturnal. But I remember after, you know, the first year I taught high school, I um, I didn't write a word. And I remember at the end, you know, at the end of that second semester, um, just sort of being like, whoa, you know, if I don't, if I don't do something, um, you know, I'm never going to write again. And I found that I was too exhausted after teaching for, you know, six, seven, eight hours. Um, and so it was kind of, it was the only possibility. And it did mean, you know, it, it did mean making some sacrifices. I mean, you know, basically I, I was really committed to teaching and I was really committed to um, keeping those two hours and, uh, that was all I had room for. I mean, it, you know, I did not have much of a social life. I did not, you know, have much in the way of relationships. Um, I had teaching and, and I had writing, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, you know, especially in Bulgaria and as I got deeper into this book, um, I mean, those were kind of the most wonderful hours of, of the day for me. I mean, I remember they were the hours in which I sort of felt like most authentically in communion with myself, most authentically in communion with, you know, the world I was experiencing living in Sofia and, and, you know, most authentically in communion with these characters who I, um, who I, whom I had come to love. And I, you know, when I think back on it, I mean, I know that this is sort of colored by nostalgia, um, you know, and that, I, you know, I'm sort of forgetting how difficult it was when my alarm would go off at 4.15. Um, but I, yeah, I, I miss those hours. I really do. Yeah, I think it speaks to what a, what a kind of powerful force writing can be in, in the writer's life of, you know, especially in the circumstances you're describing, kind of being okay with taking a break and, and having this, this moment that you think you're okay with. And then you do just get that, that real fear of like, I will lose this. This will, I, this will just right. cease being something that I do and, and being me, you know, it's so, it's so intrinsic to, I know my identity, I'm sure you as well. Yeah. And kind of really necessary. I'm, I realize, and I, I've been realizing it with some urgency because um, kind of any settled writing practice has been so unsettled in the last year and a half since the book came out. Um, I mean, it is really kind of essential to my mental health. I mean, it's, you know, I kind of don't know how I'm feeling or what I'm thinking or sort of what my relationship to the world is if I don't have a daily writing practice. And so it was kind of bewildering, you know, um, especially kind of early on in the process of of traveling around for the book. And people would say, oh, you know, how are you feeling? All of this stuff is happening and your life is changing. How are you feeling? And I would just genuinely have to say, I have no idea. Like, I really don't have any sense of um, what's going on, uh, you know, in terms of me and my changing relationship to my to the world and to my life. And um, because I don't have those hours of, of stillness and of quiet and of, you know, a kind of deep communion with language and with thinking. Um, it's, you know, I, uh, I think writers are people who need that. And it, it, it does feel like, you know, you're starving for something when you don't have it. Is the handwriting specifically always a part of it for you? Or was that kind of unique to this experience? Well, you know, um, I, I always wrote my poems on the computer, um, 
And so it was a surprise to me to find that, you know, these new kind of sentences that I was sort of hearing or feeling or sensing, um, that I could not access them on the computer, that I had to write by hand. Um, I still, you know, I write essays and criticism on the computer, um, but for sort of creative prose, uh, I have to write by hand. And that that is part of it. I mean, in, you know, because it is a very different relationship to um, to language, but then also to sort of yourself when you're writing by hand on a notebook. I mean, when I'm writing on a computer, even if the computer isn't, you know, in airplane mode and the Wi-Fi is off or, you know, um, I blocked the browser or whatever, that's still a more externally facing relationship. Like it's in, in some way it's as though I'm kind of writing into the world. Whereas when I'm writing into my notebook, it, it's for no one but me. Um, and that is essential to writing fiction or it has been up to this point. I mean, maybe, you know, in the next novel, I'll, I'll find that I want to be working on the computer, but it has felt essential that, um, that it be in the notebook. Right. Yeah. The last couple of days as I've been getting ready for our interview, I have, uh, you know, I, I read interviews or pieces that you've written where you talk about that. And then, you know, in my own work, I was kind of stuck on something and this stuff was all in front of my mind. And I have a kind of morning, you know, morning pages sort of journaling writing practice anyway. So I thought like, I'll just start a fresh notebook and like, give this a shot. And it's not like, you know, the clouds parted and the angels sang or anything, but it's, it is amazing. Like what a different, mentality it puts you in it's like more like recursive somehow you do just feel like deeper inside yourself that's a really good way to describe it yeah and I mean and you also you you know I mean just the fact that you slow down I think sort of adds to that recursive quality and the way in which I mean I feel the energy of a sentence very differently when I'm writing by hand as opposed to typing and you know, I think that the the sort of shapes of the sentences and and what belongs to you, um, you know, they would be very different if I had been typing them into the computer. Also, when I type into the computer, it's impossible for me not to go back and you know, it's impossible for me not to revise as I write. And in a first draft, I really don't want to be revising as I write. I mean, I really want to be kind of plowing ahead and trying to get material onto the page. And writing by hand helps me not read backward. Right. Yeah. I I wanted to ask you a bit about that as well. This was something that I actually mentioned on another episode. Um, I was speaking with the poet Rebecca Gale Howell, and I was telling her that, um, I hope this doesn't make me sound like a big creepo to you, but there is actually a passage from an interview with you that I have like on a sticky note on my like MacBook, you know, sticky app, because it was so, it it was just so like (laughs) crucial to like where I was with my own writing when I read it. And it just really rang true. And it was this whole thing about, you know, the key of it really being for you indulgence as a sort of antidote to the self-editing um, reflex right, right. and that like, especially yeah. when it gets really damaging. And I, and I wonder if you could just kind of talk a little bit more about where you were coming from with all of that. Yeah. I mean, because it's been, you know, it has been a kind of journey to try to recover that um, because I mean, I was in such intense editing mode for so long with what belongs to you. Um, and, you know, and, and working with other people and working with a very, very brilliant editor, Mitzi Angel, on the book, 
And so to, to sort of get back to a place where I could allow myself to sort of be really messy and to, um, you know, be committed to the, to the first draft as an imperfect thing and to allow for that, for the kinds of discoveries that I think, I mean, for me anyway, only happen when you're not, um, aiming for perfection, when you're not stopping to polish, when you're not feeling that sort of every word has to be in its right place before you can move forward. Um, you know, to me, it is really important that that mantra, which was kind of I mean, my only craft sort of guidance, since I had no background as a prose writer, my only craft, craft guidance were sort of these two mantras, be patient and be indulgent. And, you know, to sort of allow... Um, you know, to kind of allow myself to be like, I remember, you know, I, I love long sentences. I've always loved long sentences. Um, I've always loved a kind of expressive Baroque syntax. And I mean, and that's something that um, in my poetry, you know, in poetry workshops, like, you know, people had sort of said, rein it in, rein it in. You have to be severe with yourself. You have to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And to just kind of let myself, um, go and just indulge all of those um, eccentricities, even if I knew what I was, you know, producing at a particular moment was terrible, you know, I mean, to, to sort of follow an impulse, you know, instead of trying to rein it in, to actually to try to follow it to its end point, because I did find, you know, again and again, that the end point was interesting, that, I mean, you know, even if sort of three pages of digression was like really terrible and um, sort of self-indulgent in that bad way that like it would deliver me to some discovery about the character, about, you know, theme, about a particular scene um, that would be valuable, that would have sort of been worth the journey. Um, and I guess I do think, you know, one of the reasons uh, I stopped writing poetry is because those, um, kind of that, those editing skills, um, and those workshop voices and those voices of, of the, you know, really, I think great poets I was privileged to work with just became so strong and so, um, kind of strongly ingrained so that, I mean, writing poetry did not feel like an experience of privacy because I was sort of, you know, my head was, was full of, of other voices as I wrote poetry and to just kind of, you know, writing in prose and sort of, you know, not thinking about the same formal questions that you think about when you're writing poetry somehow allowed me to clear those those voices out and to, you know, just kind of be um, weird. You know, I I just sort of didn't worry about about putting off any reader or putting off any kind of authoritative voice that was going to evaluate what I was working. I just let myself indulge all of those things that are peculiar about my own sensibility. What is coming to mind for you as something that, that you would consider peculiar about your sensibility? I do think the shape of the novel is quite peculiar. Like, I think, you know, it's not a very novelly novel. And I think, you know, the main reason for that is that I just, you know, was not a novel writer, was not a prose writer. And so I think that I did, in a weird way, kind of write a novel like a poem. I mean, a novel that kind of works like a poem, where the sort of coherence of the book, I hope, is, is you know, less kind of the cause and effect of 
plot mechanics than it is a kind of um, poetic resonance, a kind of echoing of image and of um, an echoing of structure in some in some cases too. And I let myself do that. You know, I remember especially working on the first section how um, you know certain images kept recurring, and I let myself sort of build them or, or build something out of them as I would uh, if I were writing a poem, like the image of faces or the image of, of, of exchangeable faces was something that, you know, kept coming up that I allowed myself to, um, to sort of indulge. And then also, I guess a kind of, you know, sometimes there are sort of diction choices and one of them actually, I mean, an important one is actually in the first sentence, which I did, fight with my very brilliant editor about it was one of the only places where, um, I mean, she felt strongly that it was a mistake and I just felt strongly that, um, it was the only possibility, but in that first sentence or the first two sentences, I mean, there are a couple of words that really do sort of stick out as like flags, you know, as sort of weird words, probably the most, um, egregious one is the word coterminous, right? I mean, that's a word that I think, um, you know, I, I think many people would sort of say in the first line of a novel, that's not a great word to have. But, you know, I love words like that. And I think it comes from being a poet that sort of I love those multisyllabic, crunchy words that um, have kind of fallen out of common usage, but are actually wonderfully illustrative. And I, and, you know, I came to feel that sort of that word um, is like a calling card or like a signature that it sort of says, this is the kind of book this is going to be. So yeah, things like that. And I mean, all the digressions, you know, all the ways in which, you know, we'll be in a scene that has a lot of emotional heat and then the narrator will sort of veer away into the deep past or into some meditation on language. Um, Like, I mean, even, you know, there's a moment when, uh, when in the third section, when Nitko has come back to tell the narrator that he has syphilis and that the narrator needs to get tested, like this is a moment of real, um, you know, kind of anxiety and narrative tension. And, you know, the narrator sort of stops to think about the word that, that Nitko has used for his symptom and how it's the use that the, the word that you would use for a dripping faucet, like things like that, you know, I mean, just, associations that then, I mean, those are small moments, but I think that they do kind of in the, in the aggregate sort of create the shape of the book. And it really speaks to that dance that you then need to do as a writer between, you know, doing the self-editing when it is actually necessary, but also just not fighting the tide, you know, like this is your style and this is your inclination and why, why try to take that away? Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess I do think one of the dangers of workshop, and I mean, I have two MFAs, like I, you know, I am not an an anti-MFA person, um, but like, I do think that there are dangers in workshop and things to be concerned about in workshop. And I mean, probably the most important is, you know, a way in which just the structure of workshop can kind of suggest the idea that success as a reader is appealing to the largest, or success as a writer, sorry, is appealing to the largest number of readers. I just don't think that's true. You know, I don't think there's any strong book 
that is pleasing to everyone. And I think, you know, many of the books that I love best are books that actually seem to be pleasing to quite few people. I think more emphasis should be put on the, you know, in the education of writers, more emphasis should be put on the idea that actually your peculiarities and your eccentricities are the things you write into. And that, I mean, there's obviously, there is this kind of balance between, you know, working at a craft level to acquire skills that you don't have and sort of trying to be the broadest writer you can be. And then also, you know, sort of diving into things that, you know, are distinctive, which means, you know, some people, they they will seem like um, advantages and to other people, they will seem like flaws. And like, that's okay. I mean, any distinctive mark in the text is going to have its adherence and its critics. And to just sort of be okay with that. I mean, I never want to write a book that appeals to everyone. I want to write a book that, you know, I mean, really, like, it seems to me um, a, a good thing when people have strong feelings about a book, including when people like just really hate a book, you know, like that seems to me like, okay, that book is doing something it should, it should do. I have a couple questions, both regarding sort of when in the process things happen for you. And one of them is about the the sort of depth of interiority, which is just really incredible. That and the word choice, which is also just so precise, which of course, you know, with your poetry background is not surprising. But, you know, I'm, I guess I'm just kind of wondering when that comes out. Well, I mean, the um, the sort of depth of interiority is is... I mean, I think pretty much a kind of starting point and, um, and it is, you know, I, I think the, the sort of, I mean, I think I do have a basically lyric approach to writing and also to, I mean, not just at the sentence level or in the musical sense, but also in relationship to time. And, um, you know, I do in, in the fiction that I've written to this point, which I mean, is really not that much, um, you know, it's the novel and then a collection of short stories I'm trying to finish. Um, I mean, the stories do tend to be made up of um, these kinds of expanded moments, um, you know, moments when, you know, kind of time slows and there's a sort of phenomenological, you know, approach to describing sensation, to observing the process of thought. I mean, that's just what appeals to me as a writer. And that that mantra to, to be patient and be indulgent, I mean, that's, um, you know, that's about trying to maintain that, uh, that particular space of writing. Word choice, um, I mean, I do agonize over editing. I do agonize over the question of whether something is, a is, is you know, the best word or whether there's a better word. Um, I, I think I agonize even more, though, over the shapes of sentences. I mean, because I do often feel when I'm writing, like, um, you know, sometimes, and especially in the description of, of emotion or of an interior state, that actually there's not a, a, a perfectly right word. There's not a kind of, you know, mojiste to, to sort of express perfectly what I'm trying to describe. And so then it becomes like a syntactical question. And in fact, there's not just one word, but maybe two words or three words that then the sentence has to be cast 
in a way that triangulates those three words and puts them into relationship. So, you know, I mean, the narrator is kind of constantly correcting and the sentences take the shape of correction and will say this or not that exactly, but instead this or this and also this. Are you composing out loud also? Well, I don't think I compose out loud that often. Maybe sometimes I do. And certainly always editing is like entirely a kind of verbal performance for me. Like I have to be speaking the sentences. I often have to be like standing and moving with the sentences. Like I do feel syntax in this very sort of bodily, physical way. I'm feeling that energy very strongly. And that physical sense of sort of the weight of a sentence or the propulsiveness of a sentence or the the hesitation and falling back of a sentence, like that's um, really essential. Um, if I'm not feeling that, then the writing is not good. So is the kind of end goal to be feeling that with every sentence? Yeah. And I mean, and, 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 you know, uh, something is not finished until I do. And you published the first part of this novel as a novella. Can you talk about what made you feel like, or realize that the story's life was not over? Again, that's another thing that I sort of wish I had a like smart sounding thing to say about, but it was all so intuitive. Um, I, I did think the story was done. I did not think it was going to continue um, you know, I thought when I finished that that first section, Mikko, or what became the first section, which was um, then published as a novella, I mean, I thought probably I would write poems again, um, or that's that's what I intended. And then that second section, which is the section in a single paragraph, and is a section that sort of formally and affectively is quite distinct um, from the rest of the book. I was really just overcome by that section. I mean, it. it that section, I mean, this is much less true of its finished state, but the first draft of that section certainly was not, was much less something I made than something that happened to me. I didn't think I was writing a novel. You know, it was not until I was kind of deep in that section that I began to realize the ways in which it was connected to the first section. And I mean, just from a logistical standpoint, luckily that happened before I signed the contract for the novella and I was able to negotiate to use, to reprint the novella as part of a larger project. But I wasn't thinking in terms of a novel. I mean, I was thinking maybe I was going to make a collection that would have stories in it and poems. And um, it really wasn't. And then when I finished that second section in which the character Mitko doesn't appear, I mean, it was a surprise to me um, that, that that character Mitko kind of insisted on his story continuing. Um, and then it wasn't until, and even then I was still thinking of what I had done as kind of three things. Like that's how I would talk about it. Not I'm writing a novel, but um, I'm, I'm like working on this thing and it's one of three things. And it wasn't until the second to last scene of the book um, where the narrator watches a child and um, watches a boy and his grandmother in a train that I knew. um, I mean, that section was really kind of the key to the book for me, that scene. I knew at that point, I knew what the final scene was going to be. Um, I wrote the book sequentially. So, I mean, I had written everything um, up to that final scene and I knew something was missing, but I knew also that it wasn't 
something at the level of plot. Um, what it felt like to me was I was writing a kind of chord progression and one of the chords was missing, that like there was a harmony missing. And when I started writing that scene with the boy, I understood like that, that just, you know, I knew that that was the harmony the book needed. And it wasn't until, you know, I was deep in that scene that I suddenly realized that there's a similar scene where, a, where the narrator watches a child and a parent by a river in exactly the same moment in the first section of the book. It's the penultimate scene. And it's also in the same um, sort of temporal relationship to the rest of the, of, of the, the narrative material, because the narrator is sort of jumping forward and saying, at the end of all this story with Mikko, after that, months later, I was watching this boy on a train. And when I realized that, that there was that structural echo, that was somehow the thing that kind of made me say, oh, wait, this is not just, you know, sort of three related independent things. This is actually a novel. Like there are, there's a kind of imagistic and structural echoing that creates a kind of gravity that pulls these three things together. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, the subject of desire and what, as a writer, you feel drawn to. I mean, desire is uh, a subject that kind of obsesses me. I mean, you know, I think much of that has to do with having been, uh, you know, with being a queer person who grew up in the South in the 80s and early 90s. And, you know, the particular lessons I was taught about my own desire and my own sense that this kind of disordered and really disastrous desire was at the center of my identity. Um, and then that sense of desire sort of shaping my identity and shaping my life and shaping the kinds of communities I've formed and shaping the kind of art that I've made. So, I mean, desire has really been central. Um, I mean, it seems to me objectively central in human life. And then in my particular human life has been, um, you know, maybe uh, central in a, in a in a particularly acute way. Um, and I guess as a writer, it seems to me, you know, I mean, I didn't, it was not kind of a decision I made or something that I felt was, you know, remarkable or any kind of statement to sort of want to write about desire and about sex um, in explicit ways. I mean, I really didn't, it, it's, it's been a surprise to me that the sex, in the book has gotten as much comment as it has. I mean, one, because there's not really that much sex in it. Um, and I think the fact that it has seemed so remarkable to so much of the commentary about the book is really a statement about our publishing culture and a statement about the extent to which mainstream publishing, you know, is still really uneasy with, um, certainly with, with, you know, queer sex and with explicit writing of, queer sexuality. Um, I, I guess I do think, I mean, I, I do, I have made claims and I do believe these claims about the particular utility of sex to a writer and how it does seem to me like an experience that like few others puts kind of everything we are under pressure and can be so revelatory of character and of relationship. Um, and I've also talked about the extent to which it does seem to me 
like a kind of claim to write explicit sex between men and explicit sex between men that, um, you know, is written in a way that makes use of the kind of lyric resources of the English language and of the English literary tradition. Um, like that is a claim that this is a source of value and that this is a source of beauty. Um, and, you know, I've, I've talked about how it feels for someone, um, you know, for whom, I, I mean, I do think sex between men is still something that, um, even in our age of marriage equality and our culture in which queer people have made extraordinary gains in the last decade, I think the idea of sex between men is something that our culture still finds disgusting and is something that our culture still denigrates. And I think that the the gains made by queer people have been made um, to a very great extent by sort of um, keeping people from thinking about um, men having anal sex. And it therefore does feel to me kind of humanly or politically um, and aesthetically important to write that sex in a way that, um, you know, implicitly takes for granted its human value. All of that seems, you know, all of that seems um, true to me, but none of this was sort of something that I did as part of a kind of program or as a desire to, or as out of a desire to make that kind of, um, to make that kind of political point. I mean, really, like, I think that, you know, in the in terms of the relationship between art and politics, I mean, I I think that art, genuine art. I mean, it's not that art is apolitical or ahistorical. Quite the contrary. I mean, art is embedded in politics and history. But I do think that like strong art comes from a place that is deeper than intention, than rationality. I mean, I think it comes out of impulse and obsession. Um, and, you know, i that's what I write from. Um, and so it just is the case that these are the things that, that obsess me. In some interview that I read, you talked about writing about sex as having this unique closeness of the physical and the metaphysical. Actually, that was, well, that was part of the sort of subject of my PhD dissertation that was never written, it does really fascinate me that we have one language for devotion and that, you know, um, poetry of the 16th and 17th century, which was the subject of my doctoral studies, you know, it is extraordinary the extent to which the devotional lyric, I mean, religious devotion is cast in the only language of devotion we have, which is the language of physical passion. Um, and it, I do think, you know, I am someone who um, basically doesn't believe in the metaphysical. I mean, I basically only believe in the physical. But, you know, that experience we have of boundlessness, of there having to be something more than our bodies, that experience of ecstasy. Um, I mean, our closest, I mean, the proof we have of that is what we feel in sex. Um, you know, I mean, that 
that to me is really interesting. And that's why I remember as a poet, once I had a teacher, because I was writing, you know, I was writing poems that were about sex and that were also sort of philosophical and metaphysical. And I remember having a teacher who said, you know, you can't do this. Like you can't. And this came up actually in, in uh, my last semester, the Iowa writers workshop as well in a short story that I put up where someone said, you know, come on, like half the story is a sex scene and it involves a lot of thinking. And someone was like, come on. I mean, this is not, this character is not going to be thinking these things when he's having sex. And, and I just thought, I mean, okay, this is someone who has a really different experience of sex than I do. Um, Because I mean, to me, like sex, is when sort of I have those abstracts, you know, that kind of, those kind of metaphysical um, ponderings, you know, I mean, sex does provoke that to me. Um, Yeah. I mean, that, that does seem to me kind of unique in sexual experience, that it is where we are most animal and most are kind of animal natures and also where we have our most acute intimations of you know, the metaphysical of the divine. And touches too on something that I've read you talk about as well, which is that tension between believing you're having a shared experience and then not actually being sure that you're sharing the same experience. Right. Yeah. I mean, those moments. And I mean, and that's one way in which, um, you know, I mean, even though this is about a particular relationship that, you know, maybe seems quite distant from a lot of other relationships because it is, you know, structured by transaction, it begins in this anonymous bathroom. But I mean, that, you know, fundamental human quandary that sort of we are locked in ourselves and we can never have an unmediated experience of another person's consciousness. I mean, I I do think that's universal to relationships. So, you know, I mean, it seems like a pretty universal experience to sort of you know, feel like you're having this intense moment of intimacy with another person. And, you know, it's this moment of kind of melding and whatever. And then actually it's not, I mean, actually the other person is having a a really different kind of experience. And that's, you know, I mean, I think a different um, sensibility would find that, you know, the sort of greatest comic fact about human life. And my, my sensibility is sort of the greatest tragic fact about human life. I mean, of course, it's, it's both. I want to jump over to your writing life, which I know you had said is, is a little bit abnormal now um, after the book has come <laughs> out. But, but what's sort of your, your default kind of writing day? What does that look like? I mean, it's, it does feel like it's been so long since I've really had one. Um, but I am, I mean, and I'm trying to find my way back to it right now because these weeks in Louisville, I'm trying to use them as a kind of writing retreat. Um, you know, uh, I do like to write before I do anything else. Um, and cert- especially before I'm exposed to any kind of media, like I, I can't look at a screen. Um, I can't look at the news. I can't do anything. I need or check email. Like it needs to be my notebook sort of needs to be the first experience of written language I have in a day. So I I like to write before I do anything else. I write in like two hour shifts. So, which, you know, I think is just because that was the time I had as a high school teacher. And that came to feel like a kind of natural rhythm for sort of the 
the composition process. And so in a good writing day, I might have two two-hour shifts of composition and then one shift of, you know, editing. Um, and is that editing what you just wrote before, or do you kind of work on a bit of a delay there? No, I work on a delay. I work on a delay. I mean, I try to finish uh, to finish something before I edit it. So, like, with What Belongs to You, I, I actually don't think I edited the individual scenes. I think it was when I had a section finished that I would go back and edit. But I would try to push forward until... Um, until I got to the end of a big chunk of one of the three sections. Um, with the stories, I, I don't edit until I get to the end of the story, and then I'll look back and edit. Um, I Usually, like, morning is for composition, for sort of uh, creative work, and then afternoon is for more critical work. I'm usually working on some critical projects. Um, but, you know, it has been so long. And, and really, I mean, the, the truth is I have yet to really experience a full writing practice because I have not had the sort of space to structure full days of writing. Um, you know, so it's, I, I don't really know what what my sort of life as a full-time writer is going to look like. I hope that I'm going to get to discover that really soon because I've, you know, sort of had another realization, like after that first year of high school teaching of sort of realizing like that, oh man, if I, you know, if, if I keep saying yes to everything, which was very much my first book, you know, impulse, you know, to just sort of, I mean, it still astonishes me anytime anyone wants to invite me somewhere, but, you know, feeling like I had to say yes to everything, like, you know, I have lost a year of writing and, um, and I feel like at 39, you know, I can't give away years of writing. And so I'm trying to, you know, be much more protective of time and try to see what those full days of writing are going to look like. But to me, to get, you know, like two, like basically four hours of composition is pretty much as much as I can do in a day. Like composition feels very intense and really exhausting. And then, you know, after that, I have to shift to either editing or to working on some critical project. Are you able to have a full-time writing life right now, or are you still having to do that hustle of, of doing other commitments to make money? Well, no, I, I mean, I've been very much hustling. I mean, I, I do, like, for the first time in my life, I don't have a full-time regular job, which feels amazing and also unsustainable. Like at some point, um, I'm probably going to have to figure out something. Um, that, that just doesn't go away. <laughs> I've been self-employed for yeah, like six I mean, that, years. That I, think really, just... well, I, mean, I think for some people that goes away. I mean, I think if you sell your book for $2 million, that probably sure. goes away. Um, you know, or if your book sells a million copies, that probably goes away. Um, but you know, I don't write those kinds of books and, um, and so that, that kind of economic anxiety is not going to go away. But, uh, and, and I have been for the last, um, you know, year, like in this summer, I mean, really through the summer, I'm sort of insane with, yeah, with hustling, with sort of running around doing teaching gigs, you know, making, making whatever money I can. Um, but I, I am, I, I do think that, um, you know, I am going to try to take like, a big chunk of time and 
um, and just devote it to writing, you know, with sort of, I mean, it's really, it's, it's about as someone who comes from, you know, from not a wealthy background and I'm not, I don't have any sources of, you know, stability in my life. Uh, it's very hard for me to sort of say, okay, you're going to watch your money go away for a while while you write. Um, like that's really scary for me, but I'm trying to convince myself that like, it is okay to watch my bank account go down. Um, while I try to finish this book, trusting that if I can finish the book, um, you know, we'll be able to find a home for it. That's really hard. You know, that's such a shift in my sort of sense of myself and of, and of the place of my writing in the world. Um, but I'm realizing that like, I mean, if I keep sort of running all around the country, you know, teaching two days here and a week here, um, I, I really won't ever finish a book again. So it's, it's about sort of being brave and trusting. And I mean, all the other thing is I don't have kids, you know, I mean, really like if I did run out of money, what that would mean is that I would sleep on my sister's couch. Like I would not, you know, no one would starve because of it. You know, I would, I would be okay. And it's just about sort of convincing myself that, um, I guess to have faith in the writing, um, that's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. I think, you know, not to put any words in your mouth, but, but for me too, and I've talked with folks on the show who, who also, you know, come from not, not wealthy backgrounds. There, there is that lingering thing I think of just like, also, this isn't a real job. Like this isn't really work. <laughs> like this doesn't count. Yeah. I mean, and I, I do feel that, you know, and, and I mean, and that's very much reinforced by my family. Like, I mean, my, you know, my, my brother is an accountant and, um, you know, a kind of very fiscally responsible person. And, and I mean, he just sort of shakes his head at me and is like baffled at the fact that, I mean, he keeps sort of saying to people, but don't you just like want a job and a house and like all of these things. And I'm like, you know, no, I, I don't, I don't want those things. Um, you know, I mean, I, there's a lot of sort of the, the trappings of kind of middle-class life that I don't care about. Like I, I don't care about home ownership. Um, you know, and as I, 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 I do feel grateful that, you know, I, it does not feel to me like a sacrifice not to have kids. I've never wanted to have kids. Um, you know, I have sort of created a life in which no one is, is dependent on me. And then recently, um, I mean, I, I have the great good fortune of being able to get health insurance through my partner, who's a professor at the University of Iowa. So, I mean, really, like, in all of those ways, I'm so lucky, and I'm so much luckier than than many other artists. Like, everything I'm saying would be entirely different if I had kids. But, you know, also, yeah, I mean, the idea that, like, my writing, that, that you know, I could write something and, and someone would pay something for it... Um, I, I still don't really believe that. I mean, even though it happens, like I still don't, I, that just doesn't seem to me like a possibility in the world. It's a very, very, it's, it's just a big shift. I mean, my whole life I was writing for 20 years, you know, in complete invisibility and, you know, where no one would ever pay me. I mean, I think the most I ever made for a poem was $50 once from the Boston review. And I was so excited by that, you know, um, the idea that, that, yeah, this sort of indulgent thing I do of putting my thoughts and feelings on paper could have a kind of economic reward is, um, I mean, it's totally ridiculous. 
I want to jump over to the MFA piece, kind of selfishly, because we have also some similarities in the fact that I have a master's degree in a different type of writing and then in journalism. And then I started working on this novel kind of accidentally and kind of didn't realize that it was happening for quite a long time. And so I, I really related to your description of sort of like the sheepishness of like collecting degrees and then, you know, but then also that idea of like, well, I have to put this at the center of my life and respect it to get the most from it. I wonder if you could just talk about that kind of calculus and, and how it led you to Iowa and led you to a, to a master's program again in general? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I was so ambivalent about going back to graduate school and I was so ambivalent and even kind of cynical about going to Iowa. Um, you know, so I, the thing that I knew, and then I, I should say Iowa ended up, um, sort of blowing away my cynicism and ambivalence. And I had such a great experience there and I'm so grateful to it. Um, But, you know, what I knew was that seven years of teaching high school, that that had to be the end, that, you know, I was burnt out, I was exhausted, and that, yeah, I knew that, um, I mean, it was really when I turned 35, for some reason, like, 30 was not a big milestone to me, but 35 kind of was. And I remember saying to myself, like, okay, 35 years have passed. If you're lucky, you have 35 lucid years left in which you can do work. And what do you have to show for yourself? And as a writer, you don't have very much to show for yourself. Um, And like, you know, you either are going to do this or you're not. And I just felt so clearly that I had to put writing at the center of my life. But now that didn't necessarily mean going for an MFA. I was living in Bulgaria. I had been living in Bulgaria for four years. The other option was if I stayed in Bulgaria another year, if I taught um, one more year, I would have been able to apply for a long-term visa, which would have freed me from the need to have an an employer sponsor. And I could have moved to the Black Sea coast with the money I had saved from, um, from seven years of teaching. And I could have, you know, lived in this very cheap place and written. And, you know, I do think about that alternative life. And I think, you know, that actually might have been really wonderful. And I mean, that might have been the choice. I mean, that might have been the right choice. That's sort of the path not taken for me. Um, That life on the Black Sea Coast in Bulgaria, living very cheaply and just writing until I ran out of money. I only applied to Iowa. Iowa was the only MFA program I applied to. And I applied to it really for quite cynical reasons. I mean, you know, I felt like um, I didn't know anything about the world of prose publishing. I felt totally helpless when I thought about getting, you know, an agent or or trying to find an editor. Um, I felt like I needed a kind of professional orientation in that world. And I felt like Iowa was one of the few MFA programs where I would really get that. Um, And so, you know, then when I got the call from Iowa and, you know, I was offered a fellowship that meant I would be able to not teach for the first time in a decade. I I knew I had to do that. Like I didn't agonize over the choice. Like I just knew I was going to go to Iowa and Iowa did give me that professional orientation. I mean, I, I didn't find my, I didn't meet my agent at Iowa, but I did meet with agents at Iowa and I sort of found out what an agent does and like, 
what questions you ask of an agent and how you know if you have a good agent. Um, you know, I've, I learned, like I met people who had published novels, which I had never done in my life before. Um, you know, I met, um, I just, I got a kind of map of the world of publishing and that was really useful. What I also got was this kind of extraordinary community and, um, you know, two, I, I worked with two teachers at Iowa who were really brilliant and who really did kind of enrich my sense of what, um, you know, prose writing can be and what, what narrative can do. And I met, you know, in my first workshop, um, which was just a kind of freakishly strong workshop. I met a handful of writers who are going to be my readers um, for the rest of my life and whose work I am going to read and be challenged and amazed by for the rest of my life. So like, that's what all that kind of calculation and cynicism was blown away my first semester at Iowa. But I did go for those very kind of practical reasons. Um, And I mean, the, I don't know what would have happened to this book had I not gone to Iowa. Um, It certainly would not have come into the world in the same way. Can you talk about the process of of acquiring an agent and then selling the book? It was a kind of luck that nothing in my life had prepared me for. Um, I mean, I was, I, I do think that both in selling a book and then in the reception of the book, I think luck plays a much, much, much larger role than most of us want to acknowledge. Like, I think I was just really lucky. I found my agent um, through another writer. The sort of luckiest thing that happened with the publication of the novella, Nico, which was published by a small university press. I think I think they sold like 300 copies. Um, you know, there were no review copies sent out. There was no coverage of the book. Um, but it did make its way into the hands of some interesting people. And um, the nicest thing that happened from that was that I got this random Facebook message from the writer, Peter Cameron, who's a writer I really love. And, um, you know, he said really nice things about the novella. And then uh, when I, the summer before I came to Iowa, I was in New York and, um, and I asked him if I could, you know, have a drink with him and meet him. And I mentioned to him that I was looking for an agent and Anna is not his agent. Um, but Anna got her start in the office of his agent. And he said, well, you know, there's this woman who I met like 10 years ago. And I think her sensibility would be yours. Like she, um, you know, kind of interested in European literature and all of this. And, uh, and so that was a referral. And, um, you know, I just cold queried her and I said, Peter Cameron recommended I write you. And she took forever to read the book. I mean, she took weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to read the book. And I was sure she was going to say no, but then she said yes. And, um, and once I signed with Anna, I mean, it really was like grabbing hold of a speeding train. Um, I mean, that signing with Anna was the thing that changed my life. Um, I remember the first, I signed with her before I had met her. Um, so after just talking to her on the phone, one of the things she told me on the phone was she said, oh, and you know, by the way, I'm eight months pregnant with my second child. And I thought, oh, okay. So, you know, so we'll sell the book when you're back after maternity leave. Like that's fine. Um, and she said, no, 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 I'm going to sell this book before I go on maternity <laughs> leave, which I thought was so insane. And like, I thought, okay, like the hormones are real. Um, 
but you know, she did it. Yeah, she. Um, you know, we took a week, uh, sort of doing some very small things to the manuscript, and then uh, she sent it out to twenty three, twenty two editors, and within forty eight hours, we had um, the offer from FSG, and then there was another week of. Um, kind of really nerve-wracking um, stuff, agent stuff that she was doing with various other publishers. Um, and I ended up getting to have conversations with five editors um, about the book. And I just knew talking to Mitzi, I, I mean, I liked four of the five editors I really liked. And there were, you know, two others that I felt like I would be really lucky to get to work with them. But when I talked with Mitzi, I just thought, um, you know, this is someone who who sees what I want this book to be. And really, she saw more clearly than I could sort of the, the, the best self of the book. What does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Well, that's a really good question. Creative satisfaction to me right now looks like, uh, you know, an apartment in Mladost in Sofia, where from 4.30 to 6.30 in the morning, I write every day. <laughs> That's what creative satisfaction is like. I mean, I do feel pretty desperate um, to get back to a writing routine. And, to, you know, I mean, my, my challenge for myself is to be ruthless about um, creating that routine and protecting it. Um, so that's what, I mean, really, that's what creative satisfaction looks like, being the only part of the process of writing that is not fraught with anxiety for me is when you are in the middle of a project. Like the beginning is really anxious. The end is really anxious. But that middle where it's just something you come to every day and you put in your time and you sort of, you know, add to this pile of pages, that to me is creative satisfaction, being deep in a world again. Um, I, I really miss that. I want to be in the middle of writing a novel again. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our website, wmfapodcast.com. You can email us at hello at wmfapodcast.com and find us on Twitter and Instagram at wmfapodcast. Download and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Reviews are greatly appreciated. Or visit our website for more options. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC.